and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. When we talk about God's word, there's something that's very important, right? And when we look at the scriptures, this is God revealing truth to us. And so, uh, if we want to be in in right relationship with God, we need to hear biblical truth, right? Biblical faith rests on biblical facts. So we need to hear the truth of who God is and what God has done. We need to understand who we are and how to have right relationship with God through what Christ has done for us. These are really important things. So we have to hear that or read it for ourselves. And then we have to agree with it, right? We'd have to say, yes, this is truth. I am broken and incapable of saving myself. I needed a savior. That savior came in the person of Jesus. He is taken away my sin. He has made me a new creation through his resurrection. And I, I, I agree with that. But then it's not just agreement, right? The scriptures say that even the demons agree and they, they shudder in fear because they know that, it, that God's truth brings condemnation on them. So it's not just agreement, but then there has to be faith or belief. And when we talk about faith, this is something that it involves loyalty and obedience to the truth that God has revealed, right? If you don't, if you're not loyal to something, you don't actually believe in it. If you're not obedient to something, we don't truly believe in it. And so uh, that's, that's what we have to look at is what, what are we loyal to? You know, if you were to look at your life and you say, well, the pattern of my life demonstrates loyalty to a nation. It demonstrates loyalty to indulging the impulses of my flesh. Like if I were to look at the course of my life, if I have an impulse, I just do it because that's what society says I should do. You know, you have an impulse, you do you, be, be yourself and, and give it a go, right? So like, that's what I'm loyal to. I'm loyal to just doing whatever impulse I have. I don't know. But, but what are you loyal to? What are you obedient to? And so one of the things that we're gonna see as we've gone through the book of Revelation, we'll see it time and again, we're gonna be 11, chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, is uh, that... Uh, God's pretty serious about us acknowledging him for who he is. He's pretty serious about us recognizing our brokenness. He's pretty serious about us saying we need a savior and trusting his son Jesus and his death on the cross to pay for our sin and then his resurrection from the dead to give us new life. If we don't agree with God on those things, we actually, we're at odds with him. We're not, we're not a friend, we're not a son, we're not a daughter, we're not an ambassador, we're not a co-heir. If we don't agree with God's truth and then live in obedience to it, we're not on his side, we're actually in opposition to him. And as we go through the scriptures, God has something to say to those who are in opposition to him and remain in opposition to him. So take a look at your handout. Um, I want to read Psalm 2 with you. This is one of the messianic psalms. And it says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers can conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Uh, Lord there, all caps, is God's Old Testament name. And then anointed one is, in the Greek, is uh, where we get the word Messiah. So people conspire together against the God of the universe and his Messiah. Let's tear off their chains and throw off their rope, throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. 
Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where the Davidic covenant is made, and that's a quote from it. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will scatter, shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun. And that phrase, pay homage, means literally kiss the sun, or he will be angry with you, and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. So there's a clear dichotomy in this passage. There are those who are finding refuge and joy and happiness in God as they submit their lives to them. And there are those who are going to find judgment and wrath and anger as they remain in a position of opposition towards God. There's a very clear dichotomy in this passage. And this is going to show up as we look at the passage we're going through today. Uh, This messianic psalm, this truth of the Messiah, God's anointed one who is going to come and do these things that are prophesied, told beforehand in Psalm chapter 2 and other places within the scriptures. When we look at these verses this morning, God is saying, here it comes. Right? We've been in the process of looking at the six trumpets within the book of Revelation. We just finished sort of an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet last week. Now, the seventh trumpet is about to be blown, and Psalm 2 is going to happen. Okay? Let me pray with you, and we'll read these verses in Revelation. Father, this morning, I do pray that we come to you open and ready, uh, that our hearts would be bare before you, that we wouldn't be holding back. Um, the Spirit, you're here with us at all times, and you're with each and every person wherever they go. And if you need to convict us of sin or rebellion this morning, I pray that you would do so. That we would become completely aware of any place in our lives where we reject your rule. Uh, maybe, maybe we reject your rule completely, and today is the day of someone's salvation. Spirit, I pray that you would work in that person's life so that they would see their need of your son Jesus and that they would trust in his death, burial, and resurrection. God, we thank you that you've saved us from wrath. Uh, your son Jesus' death on the cross, it took away the consequences of my sin. His resurrection from the dead has made me a new creation. I stand before you complete and whole, not because of anything that I have done, but because of what your son Jesus has accomplished for me. I trust him. And God, I pray that you would lead me each and every day to live in loyalty and obedience to what you've made clear. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, verse 15 of Revelation chapter 11. It says, The seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Does that sound a lot like what I just read in Psalm chapter two? 
In Psalm chapter 2, we saw that the nations plot against, they conspire against the Lord and his Messiah, his anointed one. When you see the word Christ, it's the Greek way of saying Messiah or anointed one. And so now, now instead of the world plotting against him and maybe having some areas where they're gaining ground, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. It's an interesting thing that we recognize within the scriptures that when Jesus came the first time, uh, we see similar things happen. There are angels that show up. You guys know the songs like angels we have heard on high, right? And so the baby and, and the birth of Jesus and his first advent and the angels proclaiming to the shepherds and then to the people that, that the Messiah has come, the Christ is here, the long-awaited son of David has arrived. And in Jesus's first coming, it's marked by humility. It's marked by lowliness. He's born in a stable. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Like everything that he does to exhibit humility and service and mercy and grace to the point that he goes to a cross and dies in our place and for us as sinners so that we could be forgiven. It's about his meekness and his kindness. Well, at his second coming, it's different. A host of angels call out and it's about divine judgment. It's about his imminent rule. It's about a God and a king come to have what has spiritually taken place on the earth. When Jesus came the first time, he instituted a spiritual kingdom. You and I are part of it if we've trusted in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We are in his kingdom. We are citizens of heaven. We have been made his ambassadors, right? These are all national terms that we identify with, but I don't know about you, but when I look at the world and the nations, I don't really see Jesus in the White House. I don't really see Jesus in places of rulership. He's, he's, his kingdom has come, but in a spiritual sense. When he comes the second time, the spiritual and the physical join together. There will only be the divine king. Everything else will be in subject to him. Every ruler will be put in place by him. Every person in a position of authority will be in a, a loyal and obedient relationship to him. And so that's what his second coming is about. We, we wait this. We can't wait for him to return because we understand that the brokenness that we see on this earth is because humanity has rejected God. We've said we can be good without you. We can figure out what's right and best without loyalty to you, without obedience to you. And that's the course of human history is people believing that they can do what's right and best without God. And I've joked about this before. If you've ever read a history book, it's not so hot. We fail again and again and again. It doesn't matter if it's, a, if it's a king in a position of authority or a democracy or whatever the case may be. The form of human government is incapable of bringing about God's righteousness and holiness in a human heart. It can't do it. It can limit the evil of a human heart, but it cannot make us righteous or holy. But the king, Jesus, did accomplish this for us in a spiritual sense. If you are in Christ, you have been given a new heart. You have an allegiance to a different king. You have an allegiance to the king of the universe who made you, who created you, who gives you righteousness and holiness and purpose. But when he returns, the spiritual and the physical will be one. And so we await this coming. And then there's 24 elders here in verse cha or chapter 11, verse 16. 
These 24 elders, we've seen them several other times throughout the book of Revelation. We'll see them a few more times. And what they are is their representation of believers throughout the ages that are seated around the throne of God. And they do different things. Um, Primarily what we see them do is worship God. They actually lead worship with angels several different times. They're going to do the same thing right here. The 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was. Now, interesting observation. When we've seen them do this in the past, the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. It's left off here. Why? Because the seven trumpet has sounded and it's happening. He is eternal and here he comes. Because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. Sounds a lot like Psalm chapter 2. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give reward to your servants, the prophets, the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. The time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. And so there's this interesting phrase there. It says that he has taken his great power and has begun to reign. You might read that and go, I thought he already was. And in some ways, that's true. But again, the spiritual and the physical of this earth will be united. He will take his great power and begun to reign. It's actually in the perfect tense in the Greek, and that means a new action with ongoing results into the future. So when the seventh trumpet is blown, we see Jesus coming back. He's going to rule. He's going to reign. It's an act that he does once, and it has continuing results into the future. Now, if we're in the book of Revelation, you're going, hey, I thought there was another 10 chapters. What happens next? Okay, it's important to remember that as we go through the book of Revelation, some of these things are linear. They're taking place in a linear fashion. And some of these things, you're going to get a statement of, he sees it like this, and then you're going to get some other information. And he's going to say, oh, by the way, also the other thing that happened was, right? And so, and the book of Revelation doesn't always read like a linear timeline. Sometimes he's describing event and re-describing an event. This is our first description of the seventh trumpet and the return of Christ. But it's a action that is done once that has extending results into the future. You could say into eternity. He will rule forevermore. Now, it doesn't imply that God doesn't go without power or his reign hasn't begun yet, but at the time of Jesus' second coming, he will do so in a fashion that is proclaimed by the prophets, groaned for by creation, and something that we love and hope for as the church. We can't wait for Jesus to come back. Creation, Paul says that it actually groans for Jesus to return because it has been subjugated to sin and evil. Humanity, if you think about the Garden of Eden, when God made the mandate with humanity, what did he tell them to do? He said he wanted them to look after the earth. He wanted them to steward the earth. He wanted them to care for the garden. He wanted them to rule over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the cattle of the land. He wanted them to be good stewards of what he had created. And then he wanted them to be fruitful and multiply. He wanted the image, the perfect uncorrupted image of God through humanity to be spread across the earth. Well, what happens? Sin enters the picture. And instead of God's perfect image being spread across the earth, we have futility. We have bad stewardship. We have lives lived poorly. We have people that are willing to take advantage of others for their own gain. When Christ returns, all of that, gone. 
it is removed and the slate is wiped clean and the earth receives a new ruler. Sin, death, evil, all the things that we cannot stand taken away. And that's what the elders say. Their song gives four objectives for Jesus' returning. He's going to judge the nations. He's going to judge the unsaved dead. He's going to reward his followers. And he's going to destroy those who destroy the earth. Uh, When we talk about judgment within the scriptures upon Jesus' return, there's a couple of judgments. One is that when he comes and he returns, depending upon your view of when the rapture happens or when Jesus comes back, but when he returns, he gathers the elect, he gathers his church, he gathers those who are following him, and then they have a rewards banquet where he says, you've done very well with this. You stewarded uh, the, the areas of influence that I gave you well. You cared for your children. You used your money well. You, you weren't greedy, but instead you used what you had to bless others. And I want to reward you for this. You took the gospel and proclaiming it seriously. The Great Commission wasn't something that was for somebody else, but you took it seriously for yourself. And, and you did things either on the front lines or behind the scenes. Whatever the case may be, you took the Great Commission seriously and you made sure that the gospel reached the ends of the earth. I want to reward you for this. And so that's what he does with believers upon his return. The other thing that can happen is you could die before or without believing that Jesus Christ has saved you from your sins. You could reject God. And what Jesus describes is that there's a place where the unsaved dead are held. It's called Hades. And when he returns at the beginning of the book of Revelation, remember Jesus held the keys to death in Hades? He will open that, and then he will judge those who have rejected them. This is a judgment that's based upon works. And what we find is that when we're judged based upon our works, we always fall short. The lie of religion is that we could save ourselves through the good that we do. That's the lie of religion. That's the lie of the moralist, that you could be good enough to save yourself from the consequences of sin. And there's a judgment that Jesus references, or that is referenced here, when he returns of the unsaved dead, and people will stand before God, and they're going to try and say, but I did this, and I did that, and I did all these other things. But he's going to say, yes, but you were still in rebellion towards me. Even if the desire of your heart and your motives were to be the best and kindest person you could be, you still rejected Jesus. Even if you're the most moral person that ever walked the earth, you still rejected Jesus. And that leaves you outside of a state of grace and you cannot be saved on your own works. And so we're called to trust. We're called to believe. So those are the two judgments. The other one that's interesting here is is there's a judgment that he is going to destroy those who destroy the earth. Uh, That that phrase, the earth, it could be translated a different word. That word earth in the Greek could be translated earth or people, humanity, land, ground. Uh, The the idea is that there, there are those who live on this planet in a fashion that is not honoring God and doesn't steward what he's given them well. And we can't do it. We cannot do it unless we are in right relationship with God. Um, But God's design for the earth was that it would be, again, something that we would steward well. We would use what he's given us well. Uh, We would then take what we have and make sure that you have what you need. There wouldn't be greed. Uh, There wouldn't be uh, any of the things that we see that we go, boy, that sure isn't right. Those who practice such things will be removed. So you look at a passage like this and you go, pretty sobering. 
That's pretty sobering. Um, I can't save myself. I don't have what it takes. There's no amount of good that I can do. Even with the very best intentions, I will fall short of the glory of God. And even if, even if I could measure up, there's still a problem with my heart that I don't want God to rule. I don't want him to lead. I want to call the shots. Or I want to call the shots for him. And so it's pretty sobering to read, to recognize that the gospel is confrontational. Yes, Jesus is kind. Yes, Jesus is merciful. Yes, he is good. Yes, he is compassionate and he understands. But he also didn't come so that we would feel good about our sin. He didn't come so that we would remain in rebellion. He came so that we would sin no more, so that our rebellion would end, so that we would trust and walk a new way. Sometimes we think of God's justice and his love as things that are opposed to each other, but they work in harmony. He cares about you. He loves you. He's compassionate towards you. But he will not leave you thinking that you can save yourself. And so the seventh trumpet is blown and these things happen. The last thing we see in this chapter is verse 19. It says, Then the temple of God in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder, an earthquake and severe hail. We've seen lightning, thunder, earthquake, and hail previously in the book of Revelation. It's reminding of us of God's divine power, his authority, the fact that he's visiting, and that he's doing so for the purpose of judgment. But the temple of God in heaven opening and this Ark of the Covenant, it's a, it's a symbol of God keeping his promises. It's a symbol of God's perfection, the Ark of the Covenant, right? The Jewish people, they kept that within the temple and then within the temple, within the Holy of Holies. It was a very special place. They recognized this is where God's promises are and this is where God's presence is with them as a nation. Really interesting thing. New Testament rolls around and Paul says that we have now become a temple of God. And that the holy of holies that exists within us is not a covenant that symbolizes something, but it's actually our heart. His presence and his promises are in us as believers. But the other thing that this pictures is God's government, him ruling. Now, I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to your TV or your phone or whatever, or maybe you just get nonstop phone calls, but there's an election coming. Um... And I think it's important that we understand what human governments are capable of. Uh, human governments can only bring either what people deserve or by God's grace, some form of goodness on earth by placing limitations on our evils. That's all human government can do. God can either give us the ruler that we deserve as a nation because of our rebellion towards him, or he could be gracious towards us and give us good rulers who would limit the evil of the human heart. But that's all that law and government can do. Law and government cannot make people's hearts new. Right? 
The law was given to us as a tutor so that it would lead us to our need of a savior. That's all the law can do. Good laws will do that. Good laws given by the grace of God would lead people to want what is best, try to do what is best, fall short and go, I need a help. I need somebody that would actually regenerate my spirit, that would give me a new heart and make me capable of walking in the way that I long to live. But human government cannot save us. God could be gracious and give us good leaders and those good leaders could limit the evils of a human heart, but it cannot change the human heart. There is no salvation in the White House ever. And there never has been. There is no salvation in the Supreme Court ever and there never has been. There have been good leaders and bad leaders. There have been leaders who have done their job to uphold what is righteous and good through the limiting of of evil in the human heart and there have been those who have allowed evil to run. But never ever has any human government through a king or democracy or any other form brought salvation until Jesus came. Then a king brought salvation. Then a king sacrificed himself for the consequences of our sin. Then a king paid off the cost of our rebellion and made us his children. No other king, no other ruler has ever done anything like it, nor were they capable of. And so it's important for us to recognize where we put our loyalty our faith and our obedience. It's important to recognize where we put our hope. When Jesus returns, there will be perfect leadership. I want you to imagine this. A government with no lies, no corruption, no injustice, no greed, none of it. That's what the Ark of the Covenant is meant to symbolize here. It foresees the deepest desires of our our hearts for peace, a life without brokenness, and it promises to meet them. That's why the church longs for Jesus to come back. The reign of Jesus in a physical, face-to-face, worldwide presence is something else to consider. Something else to imagine. What will life be like when the king of the universe rules unopposed? What would it be like if the king of the universe ran unopposed in my heart? What would that be like today if the king of the universe ruled unopposed in my heart? How would he govern? How would he right wrongs? How would he ensure that all are cared for in the best way possible? Will there still be a spark of the old rebellion that seeks autonomy from his gracious care? Come on, Christian, you know this is true. You know that he rules and reigns within your heart. You know that he wants to govern you and when you let him, he rights wrongs. He ensures that people that need care are given it. But you also know that within your flesh there is still this spark of rebellion. And so each and every day we make a conscious decision. I will take up my cross daily. I will lay down my life at the foot of the cross daily. And Father, Son, and Spirit, you lead, not me.
So in some ways, it's hard to imagine, and in other ways, it really shouldn't be. The other thing of this is, while we've not seen Jesus face-to-face, I've never seen him face-to-face, I, I know him heart-to-heart. He has come and he has shown me his love. He has loved me first and because he has loved me first, I can know what it is to be cared for. I can know what it is to be saved. I can know what it is to sit in his goodness and because of his goodness say, I long to be loyal to you. I long to be obedient to you. Not because I have to, not because I think some religious standard is going to save me, but because I want to. I want to honor you. I long to honor you. And so when that old flesh creeps in and society around me, it tells me that I should indulge the impulses that I feel moment by moment. Hold on a second. Is it a good impulse? Is that an impulse that comes from the new heart and the new creation that I am in Christ? Or is that an impulse from the old man, the flesh? Because if it's an impulse from the flesh, I I want God to, Paul actually says that he trains his flesh. He actually beats it and subdues it. When was the last time that you had an impulse and you checked it against the word of God and said, no way. Not doing that. That's not holiness. That's not righteousness. That's not pleasing to God. That actually leads to death. Why would I do that? Spirit of God, lead me away from that and train me in your paths of righteousness. We can know him heart to heart. He's made himself known. He showed us his humble love, his mercy, and his justice through his own actions and words. He's made his his way, his truth, not, not just his, but the way, the truth, and the life available to all of us that are growing as we trust him. And so a common theme within our nation is we'd like the world to be good. Not everybody. But you walk up to your friends and family that don't know Jesus and and ask them, would you like the world to be good? They're not going to go, you know, actually I kind of wanted some destruction. Let's get the bombs out. Like, granted, there are people like that. Sometimes they find their way to lead governments. But, and if you don't think the world system has fallen, I just showed you. But it's a good ambition to want what is right. The question is, how do we bring it about? And so there's only one method that proves effective. There's only one leader that is vindicated as worthy of bringing this about in our lives. Only Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, our Lord, Savior, and God, the Son of God, demonstrates the, capa- demonstrates the capability <laughs> of erasing the wrongs of our past and giving us the power to live the right way moving forward. There's nowhere else to go. He is our only hope, and hope in Jesus does not disappoint And so I'll remind you one more time, biblical faith rests on biblical facts. We have to agree with those facts. Without Christ, I am broken, I am helpless, I am hopeless, and I can never write my relationship with God by my own efforts. 
but I want a right relationship with God. And I want through that relationship with God, I want my life to be the best that it could be and I want to transform the world through the love that God has shown us. I agree. But just agreeing isn't enough. Now, Father, I trust you. Jesus, I trust you. I believe that your death on the cross has taken away my sin. It ended my rebellion and it made me a new creation. I believe that your resurrection from the dead, the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has secured for me new life and an eternal hope so that when you return, I stand free and without condemnation. Because of that, God, I choose willingly to be loyal and obedient to you. I thank you that you don't expect me to be perfect. There's still grace for my future errors. But I do trust that you will lead me towards righteousness. Where's your faith? Where's your hope? Who are you loyal to? What pattern of life are you obedient to? Father, we thank you that you love us, that you care about us. We thank you that knowing our brokenness, you sent your son to take it, to remove the consequences of wrath and anger and justice from our account so that everything that was broken in us would be placed on Jesus on the cross and removed from us. And that in his resurrection from the dead, all of his goodness, all of his life, all of his righteousness, all of his holiness, all of his character was put in us as his followers. Jesus, you are worthy. You deserve all the glory. We worship you for who you are and what you've done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.